Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We are discussing King Lear one act at a time. Well, we were discussing King Lear one act at a time. So far, we have gotten through the first scene and we're going to finish act one now. And then we'll, ostensibly, we'll get onto our one act schedule. David, I'm, I think that the reason that we went so long is largely attributable to Matt's eloquence. <laughs> I, we'll, we'll go with that, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is Tim McIntosh. Uh, I'm here with Matt Bianco and I, of course, am David Kern. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, we're just going to dive right in this week. We're not going to, we're going to forego the banter. Um, and we're just going to dive right in because we need to finish this conversation on act one. Tim, do you need is there any banter you just have to get off your chest though? Or are you good? Can we just dive right in? I prefer to just dive right in. Okay. No banter required from me. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the verge of bantering about banter. So let's just move on quickly. Um, we got through scene one, as I said, and scene one, I think, is one of the longer scenes in all of Shakespeare. So it was worth some extra, some extended time on it. Um, but act two begins as Lear has sent Kent off. He sent Cordelia off. And we get, it begins with uh, Edmund the Bastard, um, which is um, Gloucester's son. And um, I know Matt has something, a question that he wants to bring up that is important to him. Uh, and I'm going to let him do that. But Tim, you mentioned in the last episode, um, the idea about nature and that that is something yeah. that was important to you that you wanted to talk about. So we're going to let yeah. this episode be shaped by your two blisses, so to speak. And we're going to follow <laughs> your bliss first and then we'll follow Matt's bliss. Um, act, one, act one, scene two begins with Edmund's uh, soliloquy of source. And yeah. he says, thou nature art my, go my goddess. To thy law, my services are bound. Why is this something that is so important to you to discuss? Well, I think because it's confusing, first of all. As I said in the last episode, I think that we tend to equate nature with a kind of a universe, not a universal with an unequivocal good. So when I say we, there's two we's in that statement. One is people in the Christian classical tradition. And the other is, I think, I'll say Americans of a certain sort. I'll begin with the Americans of a certain sort now. 
um, there's this kind of sense. I think we've got a little bit of a, um, we equate nature with kind of unspoiled beauty as it truly is. Um, the creation in her full manifest glory with none of the, I don't know, like briars and barbs that are actually part of nature. I think there's, we have kind of like a little bit of a naive, idealized vision of nature. Most Americans do. I, th- I would include myself with that. Now, on the other hand, there's a kind of a conceptual vision of nature. I think that's part of the Christian classical tradition, which is distinct from nature, like the growing green stuff outside our houses. And I think that nature is um, something like this. Is, I'm, I'm, this is ad hoc. I think nature in the Christian classical tradition is something like that mold wherein we ought to kind of pour ourselves to reach virtue and to reach wisdom. Okay. So all that being said, (laughs) (laughs) that was a long preface. I think you just read through Gloucester's monologue. Yeah, maybe I did. Or, um, Edmund's monologue. I mean, that's what I meant. Yeah. Edmund young Gloucester. um, So when Edmund steps forward and is praising nature and considering in saying like, you know, I am going to play the role of nature's nature. Thou art my goddess that might sound a little bit strange considering what a diabolical character he is in the play, right? If we have these two kind of like really kind of maybe ideal visions of nature, the concept and nature um, created glory to have Edmund, this bad guy, like speak as if he is the true voice of nature. Doesn't that, I mean, isn't that a little bit confusing or am I just kind of, fabricating a confusion. I think that um, I, I, what you're saying sounds reasonable to me, but I do think that there are many in the Christian and, 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 and the classical Christian tradition who think of nature, like in, with regards to human nature and human nature being fallen, that would see nature as being a fallen thing, a bad thing. So now I don't know if they would only ever yeah. see it in a in an extremely positive light, but yeah. but but what you're saying is, um, you know, insofar as there are people that think that what that it, it is true, right? It would be confusing here if he this diabolical character is now referring to nature as his god or goddess. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, let's take a step back, though. Why do we believe, I mean, do we know at this point, what what evidence do we have at this point that he's diabolical? I think by the time he started, we don't have a lot of information, but I think we have enough to know that he's up to no good because just before he begins his monologue about nature, he's telling Gloucester that... Gloucester's other son, his legit son, um, has it out for him and has plans for his demise, or maybe not plans for his demise, but he does not wish well of Gloucester. This is and I, in the very, is this the very beginning of the play? Yep. Uh, no, this is act one, scene two. It immediately before, follows. His, his immediately follow. after this, you mean? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Immediately after scene one. Okay. 
Well, immediately after this monologue about nature, it's when he talks to his father and sets up his brother. Where is this monologue for you in the version that you're using? Uh, no, you're right. I misspoke. It is. He delivers the words. He delivers the monologue just before Gloucester comes in. But even within the monologue, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought Edmund is up to no good. Okay, here's what I propose we do. Okay. I propose that we read some of this out loud together. Um, and Tim, why don't you be Edmund? Yeah. Matt, why don't you be Gloucester? And then if we keep going, once it gets to Edgar, I shall be Edgar because Edgar is a dope name. <laughs> I'm going to claim it. Um, so, okay. Does that work? That's, that's that was great. That. Yep. Okay. Go ahead, Tim. You enter bastard uh, Edmund Solis with a letter. Thou nature art my goddess to thy law. My services are bound. Wherefore should I, in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me for that I am some 12 moons or 14 moonshines lag of a brother. Why bastard? Wherefore base? When my dimensions are as compact, my mind is generous and my shape is true as honest madam's issue. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base? base who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull stale tired bed go to the creating of a whole tribe of fops got tween asleep and wake well then legitimate edgar i must have your land our father's love is to the bastard edmund as to the legitimate fine word legitimate well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund, the base shall top the legitimate. I grow. I prosper. Now, gods, stand up for bastards. Enter Gloucester. Edmund reads a letter. <clears throat> Kent banished thus, and France in collar parted, and the king gone tonight? Prescribed his power, confined to exhibition, all this done upon the gad? Edmund, how now? What news? So, please your lordship, none. Why so earnestly seek you to put up that letter? I know no news, my lord. What paper were you reading? Nothing, my lord. No? What needed then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? <laughs> the quality of nothing hath not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. I beseech you, sir, pardon me. It is a letter from my brother that I have not all or read, and for so much as I have perused, I find it not fit for your overlooking. Give me the letter, sir. I shall offend either to detain or to give it. The contents are in part, I understand them, are to blame. Let's see, let's see. I hope. For my brother's justification, he wrote this, but as an essay or taste of my virtue. Reads. This policy and reverence of age makes the world bitter to the best of our times, keeps our fortunes from us till our oldness cannot relish them. I begin to find an idle and fond bondage in the oppression of aged tyranny, who sways, not as it hath power, but as it is suffered. 
Come to me, that of this I may speak more. If our father would sleep till I waked him, you should enjoy half his revenue forever and live the beloved of your brother, Edgar. Huh. Conspiracy. Or actually, conspiracy? Sleep till I waked him? You should enjoy half his revenue? My son, Edgar, had he a hand to write this? A heart and brain to breed it in? When came you to this? Who brought it? It was not brought to me, my lord. There's the cunning of it. I found it thrown into the casement of my closet. You know the character to be your brother's? If the matter were good, my lord, I durst swear it were his. But in respect of that, I would fain not think it were so. I, I would fain think it were not. It is his. It is his hand, my lord. But I hope his heart is not in the contents. Has he never before sounded you in this business? Never, my lord. But I have heard him oft maintain it to be fit that sons at perfect age and fathers decline. The father should be as ward to the son and the son manage his revenue. Ah, uh, villain, villain, his very opinion in the letter. Abhorred villain, unnatural, detested, brutish villain, worse than brutish. Go, sir, I'll seek him. I'll apprehend him, abominable villain. Where is he? I do not well know, my lord. If it shall please you to suspend your indignation against my brother till you can derive from him better testimony of his intent, you shall run a certain course. Where, if you proceed violently against him, mistaking his purpose, it would make a great gap in your own honor and shake in pieces the heart of his obedience. I dare pawn down my life for him, that he hath writ this to feel my affection to your honor and to no other pretense of danger. Think you so? If your honor judge it meet, I will place you where you shall hear us, confer of this, and by an auricular assurance have your satisfaction, and that without any further delay than this very evening. He cannot be such a monster. Nor is not, sure. To his father that so tenderly and entirely loves him, heaven and earth, Edmund, seek him out. Wind me into him. Wind? Wind. Wind, wind me in, wind me into him. I pray you, frame the business after your own wisdom. I would unstate myself to be in a due resolution. I will seek him, sir, presently. Convey the business. I shall find means and acquaint you with all. These late eclipses in the sun and moon pretend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. In cities, mutinies. In countries, discord. In palaces, treason. And the bond cracked twixt son and father. This villain of mine comes under the prediction. There's son against father. The king falls from bias of nature. There's father against child. We have seen the best of our time. Machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. Find out this villain, Edmund. It shall lose thee nothing. Do it carefully. And the noble and true-hearted Kent banished? His offense? Honesty. Tis strange. Let's stop there. Yeah. Um, let's compare what's going on between here and in the first scene. Mm. Um, 
what are some of the similarities we see between like thematically or whatever? I mean, it's pretty obvious that like in scene one, we're getting obviously the conflict or the potential conflict between um, a, fa- a father and a child. In both cases, the question of the conflict is um, in question. Yeah. 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 Um, like whether the conflict is actually worth having, I think is, is, is there. Um, so obviously he's, he's right away in these first two scenes, he's setting up these two, um, these two conflicts, these two relationships, but what are, what are some of the other similarities and di- or maybe even some differences that we see between the two scenes? Well, I find it peculiar that in the scene with Lear and his daughters, you have, you know, two of the daughters being presented, presenting themselves as being the better daughters. And then mm-hmm. one daughter, you know, unable or unwilling to mm-hmm. express it that way. Mm-hmm. And then he, in a sense, overreacts and banishes the one and then chooses the others. Um, then a counselor comes along and says, whoa, 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 not so fast. Let's rethink this. And then he banishes the counselor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In this scene, you have a son who is presented as being the good son and a son being presented as the bad mm. son. And Gloucester actually reacts just as quickly and just as violently. Like he says, as Lear does, as Lear does. Yeah. He says, huh. um, wait, well, it's that whole line about villain, villain. Where is it? Um, yeah, that's, uh, I just read it. Now I can't 77. Yeah, his villain, very opinion villain. in a letter. His very opinion in a letter. And then he says, go get him, I'll app- or go seek him, I'll apprehend him, abominable villain, where is he? Um, which is interesting because he enters the scene saying, Kent is banished, France and collar party, yeah. the king's gone. Prescri-. Yeah. And then he says, all this done upon the gad, right? All of this done uh, without any... without any um, Provocation. Yeah, and and... There's actually a note, I think, that says what it is, right? Oh, suddenly, impulsively, is what my footnote mm. says. You you almost could read his opening lines there before Edmund comes in, upon the ending with upon the gad there, and then his last line of his scene there, tis strange. You can almost read that as following up on that, but everything in between is some weird like yeah, conflict yeah. in his brain. Right. So he actually, I actually wrote a note next to his response that says upon the gad. Right. He mm. too is reacting suddenly and impulsively. But then he has a counselor who comes along and says, whoa, whoa, hold on. Let's think about this. Let's gather some evidence. Except this time the counselor is a wicked counselor and he listens to him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But then when the, but for Lear, it's a good counselor and he doesn't listen to him. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's bizarre. Well, you're, it's a great point that they both are responding um, suddenly and impulsively and even the person who seems to have some common sense is responding that way. The person who is acting as a voice of sanity in the first scene can't, can't see things for what they are in his own life. Like when it mm-hmm. happens to him, he can't see for what yeah. it actually is. Yeah. Tim, you got anything? I think Matt's insight is great. And I, and I think also um, we have evidence to believe that Edgar is not just Gloucester's preferred child because he's legitimate, but also because he's his preferred child. And so just like Lear reacting against the preferred Cordelia, mm-hmm. um, Gloucester is reacting against his preferred son. I mean, it's just another similarity, just underscoring the similarity that Matt highlighted. 
that that's an excellent point, Tim, too, because it shows how how I don't use the word violently here, but I don't necessarily mean it in the physical sense, but it shows how violently we can react to a person when we have high expectations for them and they don't meet them. Yeah. Right. But if, yeah. if, if the, if the, you know, if a person that you have low expectations for doesn't meet them, you, you almost kind of wink at it. You're almost kind of like, mm, well, yeah. okay. But, what, but what, when it's, what do we expect? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, but the thing is like, I'm not sure that's a bad thing either. Right. Like, like, um, I mean, it can be unfair to the, per- it can feel unfair to the person who's being held to a higher standard, but, but like, like what's the, what's the saying that they say about parents and, or teachers and, and students and children, right? Like, like the student will, will strive for the bar that we set for them like, mm. think about that in educational terms. Right. And, um, and, and we're, we're, we're interacting with and, and engaging each child as an individual, right. And, and trying to approve them upon themselves, not with respect to this other kid. So in the classroom or in a school, right. I'm not, I ought not be comparing one student to the other and, and setting the same bar for both of them, but, but I should be helping each child to strive in relationship to himself, to his previous self, to help him, help him, you know, grow and become better. And, it, and in a sense, I think that's an appropriate, um, I mean, that's an appropriate thing, but here we see it having, it having, um, uh, effects that then get manipulated to, to be very bad, you know, sever the relationship between the, the father and that child rather than yeah. and the te- improve. The expectations things goes even back to what, to Edmund's monologue or his soliloquy or yeah, whatever yeah. where he talks about like the world has certain expectations for people like me. Why should I let them control me? He's yeah. like raging against expectations, against convention. And he's saying, this is the way it's done, but to heck with that. I'm going to carve, I'm going to make this work for me. And so um, he then, in order to, to make that work though, he has to like turn um, rightly ordered relationships against each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for the expect, so you've got the expectations that are rightly ordered. And then you've got expectations that even if you expect too much of someone or whatever, like in order, f- he, they can be poisoned, right? And that's the only way for him to get what he he feels like. That's the only way for him to get what he wants is to poison rightly ordered relationships, yeah, rightly yeah. ordered expectations. Um, David, can I mention one thing? I think that is unique to this. So this, as Matt showed seems to be an echo of what happened in scene one. Now it's echoing in scene two with a different father child relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, One little difference is that Gloucester seems Gloucester begins to probe at the reasons for Edgar deceiving him. And his reason is nature is doing something strange. So, Hmm. um, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love pools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. In cities, mutinies. In countries, discord. In palaces, treason. And the bond cracked twixt son and father. And then to continue, 
this villain of mine, Edgar, the prediction, there's son against father. The father falls from bias of nature. There's that word again. There's father against son. We have seen the best of our time. Machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. I, I think, unlike the first scene, um, where the cause of the rupture is laid, I think, squarely on Lear, come not between the dragon and his wrath. He's just enraged. Um, Gloucester sees the reason between the reason that Edgar is upset with him as kind of like having its roots somewhere in in nature, but or in some kind of like like bent aspect of nature, something peculiar happening Fate. in nature. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so is it? Well, I I was wondering because in when in Edmund's you know Gloucester set gives that speech and then leaves, and then Edmund responds with a pretty eloquent speech of his own. He says, "This is the excellent foppery of the world that when we are sick in fortune." Often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and stars, uh-huh, uh-huh. as if we were villains on necessity. And Fools um, by heavenly compulsion. Yeah, fools by heavenly compulsion and on and on. But that, that word necessity is, um, is, in English, is often, like if you're translating it from the Greek, which of course Shakespeare didn't write in, but, when you, but often the Greek word for fate can, can be translated as necessity. Mm. So um, necessity and fate tend to tend to go hand in hand in in you know kind of the classical mind. Um, so there's this sentence which he's saying we're we're villains because of fate. Yeah, because then he talks about like what star he was born under, right? And he's like, I shouldn't. It shouldn't matter what star I was born under. Yeah, and he says none of those things matter. I am who I am because it's almost like, like he's saying my father is blaming an elemental nature. And I'm saying that I have a personal nature that makes me this way. Yeah. And none of that elemental stuff could affect it, could have, could have, could have changed it for the other. It's kind of like, um, remind me if I make sure I got the right play. Is it Richard II where he breaks the fourth wall all the time? Second or third, right? Or third. Yeah, I can't and and, and it, it, isn't he have the character or there's a character in it where he's like, I'm the villain. There has to be a villain and I'm the villain and I'm going to accept my role as the villain. I'm gonna oh, do yeah. It. Right? It's the opening monologue of Richard the Third. Oh, the third. Okay. Sorry. Got yeah. My, my well, you said Roman Richard the Second or the Third. Yeah. yeah. But, but Edmund also says, you know, it goes back to the convention that he's rejecting conventions and he's saying that the, the standard shouldn't be conventions. It should be, he's saying, my dimensions are as well compact. He's saying the, 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 we should determine someone's worth by is his mind as generous, is his shape as true. I mean, he's saying, I'm just as smart, I'm just as strong. Right, um, right, and those are the things. It shouldn't be fate that controls it. It should be. Yeah, he seems to our, be rejecting our own whole, personhood. He's mocking his father for thinking that it's fate or the elements or whatever, right? And saying it's me. It's yeah, like, I am who I am, and I'm going to get what I want. And if I can't get it, it by birth, I'm going to get it by fuss. wit. He says. That's what he says. Later, he says, uh, at line 181 and 182. Yeah. Let me, if not by birth, have lands by wit. All with me's meat that I can fashion fit. Okay, so then let's compare um, Cordelia and Edmund a little bit. Because they're both sort of looking at the opportunity or lack of opportunity for land. 
literally. So Edmund is saying, I want land and I'm going to get it through wit and cunning and my own strength and I'm going to reject the convention. And Cordelia is being given the opportunity to buy entirely into the convention and including into the conventions that her father, you know, how her father sees them. And she has the opportunity for all this land. And she, in her own way, rejects that as well. But she's not going to use her wit to do it. Well, she, yeah, she exactly. She's not going to be like Goneril and like yeah. figure out the cleverest way to say that I love you. You know, she kind of rejects that. They reject it, but in opposite ways, in a sense. She has everything that she could. She has everything that he doesn't have. This is your dad's presentation of the prodigal son, right? Like, there's an Go older on. brother reaction and a younger brother reaction. One is very kind of rules based, and um, and then the other one is kind of. You know, does what he wants. Well, they both kind of are rejecting the rules, though, aren't they? Well, both that might be a both Edmund and Cordelia. Yeah, it's it's yeah, maybe like like, yes, describing it as rules based and and not rules based might be the best way. But um, you know, there's one where there's this there's this principle that I'm going to follow, and then there's oh yeah, where it's like I. I make my own principles. Right, 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 right. And she seems to have this principle that she's going to follow. And he seems like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to make my own path. I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my inheritance now and I'm going to go, you know, waste it in the, in the city. But I get to do it my way and I get to make my own choices. Right. And she's, and she's unwilling to do that. And, you know, in the prodigal son story, both of the sons are wrong, right? There's the, there's this third way that the father represents, um, it could be that that there's something like that going on here where, you know, she's she's wrong in her own right, in her own way, and then he's wrong in another way. But but most of us, as your dad likes to point out, most of us um tend to especially especially, you know, as Christians and that are that are converted in light, you know, or or well, not I don't know if that's what it has to do with conversion, but especially Christians who who want to be principled tend to identify easily with the older brother or in this case right. with Cordelia. And so right. we always read them as, we always want to read them as the good guys, as the ones that are not wrong, but maybe they are. Yeah. I mean, we know the older brother is in the prodigal son story because it tells us, right, that he won't go in and that he ought to. We won't mm-hmm. go into the brother's party and he ought to. But here we, we're not sure. Well, uh, one of the things that I, I love from a just a storytelling perspective, the way Shakespeare is setting up these mirroring characters, Gloucester and Lear, Edmund and Cordelia, and you're setting up a villain, but then the question is who or who's our who almost who's our protagonist here? Like who is the character that is right, that is worth sort of pulling for? Yeah. Do you feel like either of you, Tim Lasky, this first it's been a minute since you spoke, do you think that there is some one particular character thus far that we're supposed to look at them and say, This is the character whose side that we are on? Or could you uh, or if you think, were a director, how would you kind of try to pull that out at this point? I think we're supposed to I think our heart is for Cordelia. I think we're hoping that Kent will come back, which he does in scene three. Um, four. Scene four. Four. Uh, so I know that we have those two characters. And I think, I don't know. I, I feel like Gloucester is at, is at least a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Although we we recognize because of his outburst, like something's not quite right with the way that he's viewing his sons, and 
gosh, it's going to go poorly for him. It looks like he's going to be deceived by, by Edmund. So anyway, but I, I think the main two are Cordelia and Kent. So far. So far. So far. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's move on. Um, there's two more scenes in Act 1. There's a short one in Act uh, Scene 3, Goneril and the steward, Oswald. Then we get Kent coming in disguised, and then Scene 5 is Lear. And, All right, and, Scene um, 3 raises my question. The fool. So, should okay. I present it now? Yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it does. Yeah. So this is not really a, 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 a story in which we have a narrator, right? We just have all these different characters speaking. Is And, and in scene three, we've got Goneril basically saying, you know, accusing the king's men of being um, unruly and then the king being unwilling to rein them in. Mm-hmm. And then in scene um, five, when... Wait, yeah, scene five when, well, is there a scene five? Holy cow, where is it? Yeah, scene, no, it's still scene four, Goneril enters. So in scene four, when Goneril enters, you have it all coming up again. And then you have, um, you know, Lear and and the fool responding to her. In five? In scene four, still. Okay, okay. And then the five is Lear and the fool together. Right. So in scene four, you have Lear saying um, in, in line 258 and following, you have Lear defending his men, saying that the basically saying the accusations you're making against my men are false. Mm-hmm. Then you have the fool in scene four. Um, let me see if I can find where he says it. The, the I thought I had a note where the where the fool seems to be oh oh that's right so there's a I, I don't let me see i don't know if i can find it very quickly but there's a scene where the where goneril speaks and then the fool speaks next or very close to next and the fool attacks goneril herself rather than or in the in the king's reaction interaction with her rather than rather than pointing out to the king that Goneril's accusations are correct. Whereas the fool does not have a problem pointing out to the king when he's wrong, but here he doesn't. Like he has an opportunity to say, yeah, your men are acting like fool, you know, acting like, uh, acting inappropriately, you should stop them. But he never says anything like that. And so I'm wondering like, who in this play can we trust? Right? Am I okay. am I to assume that the king's men are acting unruly? That Goneril's correct, or is Goneril fabricating this whole story so that she has a means to kick him out? Is the king is the king defending his men because he wants to be able to keep them, or or are they actually worthy of defense? And then why is the fool not addressing that question? And of course, this is assuming we're trusting Oswald's word because she asks him. Did my father strike yeah. my trotting of his fool? I, madam, by day and night he wrongs me. Every hour he flashes into one gross crime or another that sets us all at odds. So that's saying, I guess, Lear, she's saying Lear seems to be pitting people against each other. Like he's trying to put us all at odds mm, with each other. Right. 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 And then, yeah. So then is Oswald trustworthy? Yeah. See, I, take, I, take, I take it as a fact that what 
Gonorrhea thinks is happening and what Oswald reports is happening is true. I think what's up for grabs with the clown is his allegiance. Or the clown's allegiance. His correct. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't I don't know that there we have really good reason to suspect that um we're being lied to about the king's behavior. I think the question about the king's behavior is whether or not he is legitimate in behaving the way that he's behaving. Like now that he has passed on his rule, uh, and even though he retains kind of his retinue of men, he's still basically acting like he's the king and he's acting like a blustery king that, um, like ought not be corrected by anybody. I kind of think that's what's up for grabs more than there might be some deceitfulness going on about his actions. Well, okay. So in line 195, act four or act one, scene four, starting in one line 195 and following, she gives this whole speech about his men being insolent and uh, the, your, uh, your insolent retinue do hourly carp and quarrel breaking forth in rank and not to be endured riots. Um, I, sir, I had thought by making this well known unto you to have found a safe redress, but now grow fearful. Um, and then you know, she goes on and then the fool is the, is the next person to speak. Yeah. And the fool, the fool turns to the, to the uncle, <laughs> to the king and said, <laughs> for, you know, uncle, the head sparrow fed the cuckoo so long that it's had, that it's had, it had bit off by it young. So out went the candle and we were left darkling. And the so so there's an interesting point right the the gonorrhea is making an accusation against the king and his men and the fool does not um confirm confirm that he just says you know here's here's a here's a daughter trying to bite the hand the dog biting the hand biting the hand of the the one who feeds her right, right. yeah but but Matt, don't you? Re- I read that as that's what his criticism of Lear is at the beginning. When the fool starts really making fun of him, he's like, "You did this. You gave your land to your two daughters, and now you're surprised that they're treating you like a child." I don't. I don't see him as disputing, like necessarily what Goneril is doing. I see him sort of saying, like, "King." You made a terrible decision, and you're you ought not be surprised at the consequences. But but couldn't if if her accusation is correct, couldn't he respond by saying, "You're acting like a child, so she's treating you like a child." If oh yeah yeah he he could not right which which is not to say that because he doesn't respond that way, it therefore prove something right i guess i'm kind of making right. an argument from silence but um I, I i i don't know it's interesting to me because the 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 fool is is one of a few people who constantly point out to the king his faults right but the fool gets away with it everybody else gets banished for it right um punished in some way but the fool is kept around the fool uh-huh. like so I think that says that speaks something to the character of the king, but I don't know if I'm there or there yet. But um, setting that aside, I think it says something about the character of the fool that that 
the fool is is willing and able to be utterly honest with the king. But maybe your maybe your point is right that he is still being honest with the king, but about a different question than the one I want. Yeah, that's what that's my supposition. I don't know. I just don't know what on what grounds can we believe? Like we have no evidence that his that his men are acting unruly apart from Goneril's accusation and um well and Oswald's comments. Well, we're certainly getting into some murky waters here. I mean, even the idea of Kent coming in disguised. We get into these themes of do we do people know us who for, for who we really are? Are we telling the truth when we're presenting ourselves? Do we know who we are really? And I think that that begging part of begging the question of to what extent is Lear? I mean, is Lear who he actually is at this point? That's right. He does say at this point, right in this scene. I think he says, "Who am I?" Yeah. And then he says, "The and then." He, the fool says you're Lear's shadow. Well, and there's this constantly, the people are constantly questioning who the other person is. Lear even says, are you our daughter? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I hear you, but I don't think that it's um, like identities are being lost. I think that question, are you our daughter, comes with a tacit, um, then why aren't you giving me the respect that I deserve? Why yeah. are you treating yeah, me and my that. men this way? No, I don't disagree with that. I just think that, you know, I think there's just the recurring theme of, of what I was saying of at least at the very least there's a need for these two characters or for Lear to constantly remind people who they are and who he is. He, I mean, Lear at Lear constantly is asking questions of identity. What art thou? He asked to Kent, art thou our daughter? I mean, I'm not saying that they're not independent. They don't have independent meanings, but it's part of how Shakespeare is characterizing Lear, right? He's constantly asking people, who is this? Who am I? Who are uh-huh. that? What are uh-huh. that? Um, it's, I'm not saying that in the individual moments they don't have their individual meanings, but it's just part sure, of how sure. Shakespeare's getting us to what does that mean about develop Lear? themes. Well, that's um, that's a good question. Is it a trope? Well, well, I think I think David, you're exactly right. I think I said a second ago that it's not confusion over identities. Meaning, I don't think, with the exception of Kent that anyone is mistaken about who anybody else is on the stage, I think what's beginning to happen is that all of the previously held, uh, what's the word, positions of authority, identities of authority, like Lear as king, everything is now starting to shake and kind of fall apart. And Lear especially is having a very, very difficult time adopting the new yeah he he's not able to reconcile that the game now has completely changed since he has given his throne away he's not the king anymore and i think he can't bear that because i think at root for him and i said this in the last episode is a personal uh failure or an, I'll say an unwillingness to recognize that he's a mere human being. And instead he wants to think I am like by nature, a King. I'm not by nature, a human being. I'm by nature. I have the power and authority of a King and I don't smell like mortality anymore. So I think everybody else around him recognizes that, no, you're not the King anymore. And now that power vacuum has been, ha- that, that, that 
power status has been handed to these two daughters. So they're going to start treating you as if they're the two queens, which they are. And Lear can't stand that. Mm. And so he surrounds himself. But why does he keep surrounding himself by the fool? Like he keeps calling for the fool. I, I'm with Matt. I think that's a credit to his character. I think in like deep inside, he is like there's a glimmer of hope and a desire, a glimmer of desire for the truth for him. And that's the reason that he doesn't have the fool whipped, which he threatens to plenty of times in this scene, but he, mm-hmm. he doesn't do it. It's interesting how often he speaks, but how few, he actu- how few lines he actually has. Because he speaks the all fool? The, No, no, no. Lear in this, this since ah. act one in these scenes, in most of his lines, I would wager like something like 20 of his lines in, in act four, for, or in scene four, for example, are short questions. He's constantly asking questions. So he's speaking all the time, but Goneril's got the longer lines and even Kent has yeah. longer lines and the fool's got longer lines. So he's there, but like his expression of himself and of what he knows that's going on is very limited. He's like, he's just constantly, it's like you can almost imagine him like looking around saying, wait, what's that? What's that? What's going on here? You know, constantly, he doesn't know anything. So he's processing by asking tons of questions. Like if you look at the conversation with the fool and with Kent, it's one question after another. So look, listen to this. Okay. Kent comes in disguised. It's the beginning of scene four. Lear says, in his second second line set of lines, what dost thou profess? What wouldst thou with us? And this is Kent's response, disguised Kent's response. I do profess to be no less than I seem, to serve him truly that will put me in trust, to love him that is honest, to converse with him that is wise and says little, to fear judgment, to fight when I cannot choose, and to eat no fish. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lear says, what art thou? Um, now, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about the, the end to eat no fish, apart from what the note says that he might be just saying, I'm not a Catholic, but yeah. I don't know. Um, the, uh, but what's interesting to me is that, okay, this, is, it's this, this passage is, is one of the passages that begin in my mind to want to rehabilitate Lear's image. Right. I'm not completely convinced that Lear is gone. Uh, yeah, that he's just a goner. I, like maybe he makes some mistakes early on, but I'm not sure he's his general character is because Kent is because of how Kent is re- seeing him. Well, because I think Kent is listing those things because he already sees those things in Lear. Couldn't it be wishful thinking? Like well, he, he's saying, "Prove to me these are things I want. Prove them to me. Prove to me that this is who you are." So, okay, when Kent first walks in. He's alone. When he, mm-hmm. when he enters the scene, he's alone. And the last lines of his, of his the soliloquy there are, if thou can ser- canst serve where thou dost stand condemned, with Lear, mm-hmm. so may it come thy master, whom thou lovest, shall find thee full of labors. Kent loves Lear, but he must love Lear for a reason. Lear must be lovable. Um, then... He says these things, which I think is his way of saying, this is the kind of man I know you to be. This is the kind of so, man I want to serve. So we already know, or it seems already, he's, Kent has been presented as a trustworthy character, someone who we should be yeah. admiring. Right. And so right. he comes in here and, the, and we should, it, he's presenting an alternative view of Lear that we should at least take note of. Right, right. 
That's right. interesting that there's you're getting these different compelling versions of Lear competing with each other. And in the middle is the Lear who doesn't know anything. Yeah. Well, what I had not noticed until you said what you said is that he says he wants somebody who says little, who is wise and says little. And I hadn't noticed that Lear says little, mm. but you're right. I wonder how long that goes on. So if you look at, okay, so through the, I mean, most of it, the, I don't so there's a basically one, two, three, um, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The next nine, the first nine times he speaks is maybe two lines at the most. And then before uh, he leaves, he says, follow me, thou shalt serve me. If, and then that line's four lines. But he's basically saying nothing. And uh, this is a list of the things he says for a while there. Um, what wouldst thou, what, who wouldst thou serve? Dost thou follow me, fellow? What's that? What services can thou do? How old art thou? He's just... Look at that. <laughs> Look at starting in line 258. He has a couple of lengthy, lengthier... Um, statements, three of them, lengthier statements, and it, and it's in interaction with his daughter. Yeah, two twenty. He speaks five lines. Um, his, uh, he, the fool has all these long things, and he's just like, um, perhaps I'll call me fool. The, uh, provocateur here. What do you think of this, Tim? Like how little Lear is speaking? I think it's a great observation. Um. I think it, I have two thoughts. One of them is, gosh, compare this scene with scene one, mm-hmm. where the overwhelming number of spoken lines are leers, and they are condemnations and judgments that produce a new situation, like that produce new action. And that's like basically what scene one is. And now we get to scene three. And it's short questions. So, I mean, I think this is such great work by Shakespeare. He's now putting Lear immediately in the position where he's the receiver. He's not the driver of the action. And you can just see it in the terseness of his, of his questions. I mean, but, he's, he's yeah. dethroned. The crazy thing is, so then as in, you know, at the end of it, he begins to speak more when he gets angry. So yes. the honorable comes in, has this long thing beginning with 231. And then that's where we get to the part at 246 that where starts to, he starts to speak for the next two page, the next little bit here before he leaves. Darkness and devils, he yells, saddle my horses, call my train together. Degenerate bastard, I'll not trouble thee. Yet have I left a daughter. And he's so and then the next thing he says is, Woe that too woe that too late repents. Is it your will speaks or prepare my horses in gratitude, thou marble hearted uh-huh. fiend, more hideous than when thou showest thee in a child in the sea monster. Um, and then he says, Detested kite, thou liest. Um, uh, he so he uh, and then the next bit here, um, before he leaves, he's making all these commands and he's all angry, and then he away, away, he leaves. So until he get, it builds well, to his God. anger. That speech about yeah, here, we have future to, here. We have to talk about that in a second. Oh, it's oh my gosh, it's so because awful. It, it leads to Edmund, though. You look at the first lines there. Mm-hmm. Here, nature, here, dear goddess, here. Yeah. Edmund had yep. just called nature his goddess as well, and Lear yep. is then doing the same thing. So Shakespeare's clearly equating the conniving Edmund with Lear here. Um, there's at least that the way they see the world is similar. Um, but so he, until he gets enraged, something builds, you know, Goneril drives him more and more to anger. 
to the point that he begins to then lash out. And when he lashes out, that's when he speaks. Can we go even like about eight lines above uh, when he's, you know, like really ramping up against Gonorill? And in the most exaggerated regard, support the worships of their name, of their name. Oh, most what, small. What you Sorry. I am on 245 and following. Okay. Oh, most small fault. How ugly didst thou in Cordelia show, which like an engine wrenched my frame of nature from the fixed place. Sorry, Tim, hold on. That's right. It's two. Are you guys there? It's 261 in our, in our version. Line 261. Okay. Got it. Um, wrenched my frame of nature from the fixed place, drew from my heart all love and added to the gall, oh, leer, 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 beat at this gate that, thy, that let thy folly in and thy dear judgment out. Go, go, my people. And then continuing. He strikes his own nature. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that both Lear and Edmund put themselves in the position where they are commanding nature not where they are servants to nature or trying to conform to nature. Which would be weird if you view it as a goddess. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean like a goddess that's that they want to do their bidding. Yeah. Yeah. Which says a lot from a characterization perspective, something like that tells us a lot about what they think of themselves. Yeah. And to like, sorry to cheat forward a little bit. Um, Shakespeare's going to put Lear basically against genuine, like real nature in the middle of the storm. And, how, <laughs> and he doesn't run for shelter, but he rages against the storm. He basically defies nature and says that he's going to stand against it, which is like, at this point, he's completely losing his mind. And I, but I don't think he's really lost his mind when he's, saying blow wind crack your cheeks hurricane spouts when he's raging against nature i don't think he's really lost his mind yet but it's after that his senility is almost completely full-blown and we won't see him in his right mind again until very late in the play which for me begs the question that is shakespeare asserting that our capacities as human beings that our sanity to some degree as human beings is contingent upon us recognizing our fixed place in nature. And if we defy that fixed place in nature, we are basically asking for madness to invade us, reciting with madness. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation about the storm because I'm not sure I've got the same read on it as you do, Tim, and I need to be taught. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I, I say this, like I'm asking questions about this and I'm kind of doing a two-step because partly I am, as you guys have probably figured out, asserting something, but I'm also trying to hold it with an open hand because, man, Shakespeare is he is notoriously difficult to, it's notoriously hard to find him behind the text. 
which I don't necessarily think is a good idea as a reader anyway, or as an audience right. member anyway. Right, right. right. Um, but <clears throat> I think with like somebody, we, we praise Tolstoy and Dostoevsky frequently on this show. We praise Austin on the show, we praise Flannery O'Connor. You can find O'Connor behind her texts. And I think it's, it's hard, but once you start seeing the patterns, you can really, you can find her. You know what's really important to her. Shakespeare is very, very difficult. So I'm asking these questions about nature, partly because I think like I've got a conviction about how he views nature, but I'm also genuinely, it's not easy because he's speaking through the mouths of multiple characters. Some of them are to be esteemed and some of them are not virtuous characters. Yeah. I mean, is there any, I mean, after the speech and act one, scene four, you know, ending where he leaves with a way away where he kind of like curses his daughter and says, dry up in her, the organs uh-huh. of increase and from her derogate body, never spring a babe to honor her. If she must team create her child of spleen that it may live and be a thwart disnatured torment to her. Ugh. Um, let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth with cadent fears, fret channels in her cheeks, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt that she may feel how sharp, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Um, I mean, is there any he's, question he's talking about his grandchild, just to remind everybody that's his <laughs> grandchild. He's talking about, I mean, is there, so wait, I mean, well, what maybe is there any question that we're supposed to view him as villainous in some way at this point? Lear? Yeah. I don't know. I'm okay. Okay, look. Like you don't get lines like that. I mean, like if this was Othello or Macbeth, I mean, like you don't get lines from this. That's like Lady Macbeth talking there. Right. It's not normal. I mean, it's not normal for a dad to talk about talk that way about his daughter. But it's it's not necessarily like he doesn't necessarily mean it. Right? Like like people have people say things mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna kill you. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, my wife just said that to me on Thursday, right? Um, <laughs> the, uh, she hasn't said it to you since? No, surprisingly, no. <laughs> um, but on Thursday, she gave me the, you know, the look and then said, I'm going to kill you with this very <laughs> sounding voice, right? Right, right, of course. The, uh, I mean, it's a thing that people do. It, this could be that or not, probably not. I mean, he's, you know, he's the king. But, but look, okay, so... Goneril makes her accusation one last time in line 250 and 251. You strike my people and your disordered rabble make servants of their betters. Now enter Albany. There's disorder of relationships again. Well, there's an accusation of disordered mm-hmm. relationships, right? Right, right. The theme, thematically. Then Albany enters. <clears throat> then Lear responds to Goneril. Then Albany says, pray, sir, be patient. Mm-hmm. Then Lear goes after him or whatever, responds. And then Albany says... Well, this would be very interesting in how you direct it, right? If you're performing this. Because couldn't he come in and then you could, the part where he says, detested kite, thou liest, my trainer, men of choice and rarest parts. He doesn't have to say that to Albany. He can still be talking to Goneril. To Goneril. Right? But listen, he says... my he, Okay, he responds to the accusation. My men or my train are men of choice and rarest parts that all particulars of duty know and in the most exact regard support the worships of their name. Then Albany says, my Lord, I am guiltless as I am ignorant of what hath moved you. I don't know what's going on. Why are you blaming me? So you're telling me that 100 men are living in their home 
and being rabble rousers. And at one point she says that they're, they're like the suitors in the Odyssey. Epicureans, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they've turned her home into a brothel. They're beating her their servants. And Albany doesn't notice, know anything about that. Albany's confused. Yeah, you know why Albany's confused? Because she's lying. That's why Albany's confused. Sorry, I just had to go back. To and then she time. does say, though, I mean, to support this, at the end of it, after he, Lear leaves and she goes, and he goes, Albany goes, now gods that we adore, where I've come this. And she says, eh, don't worry about it. Never, never afflict yourself to know more of it, but let his disposition have that scope as dotage gives it. Yeah, he's, he's being an, he's like you an old don't man. don't need yeah. to know anything about, I'll take care of it. Right. Wait, 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 wait. Albany is not claiming to be ignorant about um, Lear's men's behavior. He is... He is. He does not know why Lear is upset right now. What's the difference, my lord? I am guiltless, as I am ignorant of what hath moved you. Right. So the difference being, um, let's imagine, David, you go home and um, you know that your boys have been, you know, like really rowdy for the last week. I know this is not like a true scenario. It's just a hypothetical. Yeah. Your boys have been really rowdy <laughs> and you go home and your wife has, is really upset. Well, you may know that the boys have been really rowdy, but you may not know what, you know, like why she is upset in this moment. Is there a particular thing that the boys have done? Um, is she upset about something else? I think that's what's going on with Albany. He surely knows that the men have been hell raising, but that doesn't mean that he knows exactly why Lear is up. What particular thing is upset Lear right now? Well, why does Goner say, don't worry about it. And, and Lear had just said that he has just came to the defense of his men. So it seems like if, if, if Albany knows that his men are being rowdy and then Lear is saying they're not being rowdy, I'm out of here. Then, Albany would know why he's upset, right? He's upset because his men are being accused of being rowdy and he's well, disagreeing with it. To Tim's point earlier, though, I do believe that Lear is partly upset at himself because, I mean, he says he beats at his own head and he says, um, Lear, Lear, beat at this gate that let thy folly in and thy dear judgment out. So he's basically saying, you, he's admitting to himself, you let this happen. You gave them the power until you let all this trouble happen. Um, that's how I read that anyway. Yeah. Well, so and then that, look at, look at, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, so that just, that Tim mentioned something like that earlier. Yeah. Like, Tim, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think I cut Tim off earlier. So let me. <laughs> let me well, I, I just, maybe I'm misunderstanding the points that you guys are making, but I don't think that there's a, conf I, I really don't think that, um, people are being intentionally deceitful in this scene, obviously, Candy's dressed. You don't, dressed in you don't a, think Goneril is being? I don't think she's fabricating she's, anything. Oh right, like Edmund's not. Oh no, I think Edmund is. Um, but that's the previous scene. I think in scene three, which takes place in the palace, I don't think that like they're conjuring up false actions that Lear's men have. Dude, they're parallel to each other. She's doing exactly what he's doing. No, I don't see that. I don't see that. How do you not? How do you? How do you <laughs> see any? How do you see that she's not? 
I mean, what, um, what makes you think that she speaks the truth and lies not? Man, I hope we're talking about the same thing. The opening, the opening lines of scene three, my father strike my gentleman for chiding of his fool. I, madam, from, uh, is it Osmond, Os, Oswald? Um, I just don't see evidence within the text that this is, that they're saying amongst each other with Lear outside of the room, hey, let's say that Lear's men have been misbehaving. And I think Lear doesn't really doesn't really dispute that they've been misbehaving. He disputes that it's it's their right to misbehave because they're his men. Mm. No, no, no. He's That's the king. Not he, he's not saying their right to misbehave because they're his men. He's saying their right to misbehave because they're correcting or not misbehave, but their right to behave the way they are because they're correcting bad behavior in others. Just the same way, the same way Kent trips Oswald, because Oswald is being disrespectful, and that's the appropriate response to somebody's being disrespectful to the king. But I mean, like, look at the end of act of scene one, right? She says to Reagan, Goneril says to Re Reagan, the best and soundest of his time hath been but rash. And must we look from his age to receive not alone the imperfections of long and graft condition, but therewithal the unruly waywardness that infirm and choleric years bring with them. She's predicting that this is what's going to happen. And then Reagan responds. And then she says, there is further compliment of leave taking between France and him. Pray you let us hit together. If our father, if our father carry authority with such disposition as he bears this last surrender of his will, but offend us, we shall further think of it. We must do something and in the heat, right? She's like, she just got half the kingdom and she's already figuring out how to overthrow him from this position he's going to be in this new. Okay. We agree on, we agree on that. Uh, we agree on that, but does that mean that they're not misbehaving? And well, the lines, no, the best incentive is... It means we don't know. So Her accusations so, are untrustworthy. So what what Matt is saying then is, um, she's proving herself fundamentally untrustworthy, and so we should question everything she says. Yeah. And you're Tim. You're just saying, yes, correct. Um, you're agreeing that she's being a little conniving, but maybe yes. not quite. You're not quite. Do you do you agree that we should question things she says? Um, because or is she the, yeah I, or is she the villain? That explains her the plans to the end. <laughs> She's the villain that explains her plans, which is sort of the nature of a play, I suppose. Like she says to Albany after this, she says he may guard his dotage with their powers and hold our lives in mercy. And then Albany says, "You may fear too far." And then she says, "Safer than trust too far." Like Albany's not in any way convinced that he's going to overthrow them with his 100 nights. But she seems to think so. She seems to think that's what he is doing. Uh, so I agree about that. The thing that I'm disputing is whether or not, it's just about whether or not she's lying about the behavior of his men. And I don't, and I'm, my claim is, I don't think there's any evidence in the text to suggest that what she's accusing his men of doing, they're not doing. And so I agree, no she's deceitful. She's deceitful. She's suspicious of Lear. All the things that you said about her kind of motivations. Yeah, I agree with you. Which, which all could be evidence in the text that she's lying about the behavior of his men. 
Or that she Maybe, could be sure. Could be lying. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. open to that possibility. Yeah, I'm not saying that we have any way of knowing she is lying, nor do I nor we have any way of knowing that she's not lying. But given that we know she's untrustworthy. Given that we know that she's or an conniving. untrustworthy trustworthy conniving person, we should look for clues as to uh or evidences as to whether she's lying or not. Do you is that fair? Yeah, but then I would make a supplementary um, oh argument gosh. and say if it if it is well, I think it's important. I think it's really important because if we go forward, and our question is whether or not she is um, trying to be a source of confusion, and whether or not she's whether or not what she reports is false. But I think that's a really important character. That's a really important distinction in understanding what's going on in the play. What can I ask you a question? Are you, yeah. are you saying this based on what we've read so far? Or are you saying this based on the, the overall tenor of the play or her tenor of her character in the play? Um, I can't divorce myself from having read the thing and seen the thing so many times. So probably based on everything. Okay. Should That's we talk about should, should we talk about scene five before we go? It's the short one with Lear, um, Kent disguised in the fool. <clears throat> I mean, Kent's just there. Yeah, for yeah, second. yeah. So Lear says he says to Kent, uh, "Go to Gloucester with these letters. Acquaint my daughter no further with anything you know. Then comes from her demand out of the letter. If your diligence be not speedy, I shall be there before you." Uh, he says, "I will. I won't sleep till I've delivered it." So Kent runs off. The fool is there, um, and he says, "If a man's brains were in his heels." <laughs> We're not in danger of kibes. <laughs> um, Whatever those are. Yeah. My footnote is very unhelpful. Chill blame. Chill blame. Yeah. Back well, to the chill blame. Can we have a footnote for a footnote now? Wait, like what's the, Fox. what's the, what's the word in the footnote? Chill, it says kibes are chill blames. Oh, chill blames. Yeah. Don't tell us, you know what chill blames I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know what they are. <laughs> we need David Foster Wallace footnotes for the footnote here. Yeah. Um, and then Lear's just like, I boy. And it's like, I, I always imagine like that he's just kind of thinking about something else. And he's just, he's just like, yes, yes. Like when your child's talking to you. And then the, the fool says, then I prithee be merry. Thy wit shall knock no slipshod. And Lear, ha, ha, ha. is a very like stage direction-y line. And I don't know exactly how to interpret the way. I mean, is he laughing as uproariously? Is he just sort of like, huh? how, do you, how do you guys read that? Like, what's Lear's mood here? Can we tell? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, know. I think... Again, Lear's not saying anything again. Ha, ha, he yeah. says, I, boy. Ha, ha. What can't tell, boy? No, I did her wrong. No. Why? I will forget my nature. So kind of a father. Be my horse is ready. There are all these short lines. He's not, he's not angry. He's not angry at all here. When he he's not talking, he's not angry. Like, there's these, you know, there's interspersed comments about, are my horses ready? Can we go? Can we go? But that that comment though, I did her wrong. What's that? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And then his last line right before the gentleman enters, oh, let me be not mad, not mad, sweet heaven. Keep me in temper. Mm -hmm. I would not be mad. How now? Are the mm -hmm. horses ready? <clears throat> I think there's the I, I feel like Shakespeare is doing a play on the idea of madness, right? Because there's madness and anger as anger, and there's madness as in crazy. And he's both most crazy when he's most angry. And when he's speaking, it's proof that he's 
angry and his madness comes, the more he speaks, the more angry he is. And the more he speaks, the more his craziness, his senility comes out as well. So I think even just in the way he presents Lear's characterization, he's doing a play on words. Like he, maybe he's not saying madness and craziness are fun words because they're similar. They have similar meanings or whatever, but the way he presents Lear as a character plays on those definitions. Mm -hmm. You know, there in this scene, there's there's the fool's second the second time the fool makes a comment about Goneril and possibly Reagan not being his daughters. Mm. Mm. So, so here she he says in uh, line twenty nine. You know, well he asked, I can tell you why a snail has a house, and Lear says why, and he says why to put its head in not to give it away to his daughters and leave his horns <laughs> without a case. And the, the footnote here helps us with the horns be, being referring to the cuckold's horns um, with an implication that Goneril and Reagan are illegitimate. But it's the second time he does it because back in... We should in, reference Edmund. We should call to oh, mind Oh yeah, Edmund. which would call to mind Edmund. Good point. Um, but back in scene four on line 210... That the, it's a passage I read already. The the head sparrow fed the cuckoo so long that it's had its head bit off by a young. So out went the candle, and we were left darkling. The uh, but the cuckoo is is a bird that again footnotes are helping me here. But the cuckoo is a bird that 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 puts its eggs in other birds' nests. So the head sparrow is raising the cuckoo, thinking it is its own. And then, of course, the cuckoo gets bigger and stronger and then eats it, apparently. Yeah. Um, but again, so now he's the head sparrow. She's the cuckoo. And he's taking some care of her for so long that now she's going to turn around and bite his head off. Um, so there's, there's another implication, perhaps, that the fool thinks that he is not the legitimate father of these two daughters. And it seems like Lear doesn't even know what he's talking about. He right, he he's just sort of like, are my horses ready? And then he says, the reason why the seven stars are not are no more than seven is a pretty reason. And Lear's just kind of like, because they're not eight. And then he says, you would make a good fool. And Lear doesn't even respond to that. He just says, to take it again and perforce, monster and gratitude. Um, and then he says, I'd, I'd have, if that were if that were my fool, uncle, I'd have thee beaten for being old before thy time. And then it's like, <laughs> he was like, wait, what's that? Huh? Like yeah. pulled out of his stupor, and then was like, "Thou shouldst not have been old till thou hadst been wise." And then, um, then that's when Lear says, "Oh, let me be not mad." And it really does seem like the fool is saying all these truths, and Lear's just sort of like not paying attention to him at all. He's not, he's not all there, aware of the mm -hmm. truth that this, or the accusations that the fool is spewing. And yeah. the fool can be like a voice, a clue into how we should be thinking about like Shakespeare, how Shakespeare thinks about Lear, perhaps. Would you? What do you think of that, Tim? Say say it one more time, David. I'm just wondering if perhaps because the fool is being very, he's saying, he's making assertions here and making he's even making some accusations. It might be it might be that the fool is telling us how to think about Lear, yeah, um, as an audience. And and maybe yeah. the fool to Matt's to Matt's question about who's trustworthy, the fool may be the one who is trustworthy one the one we should actually be paying to attention to when he speaks i mean we should pay attention to everyone but, but there's some truth in what the fool says right. i i think there i think um the fool through his lies is has the most accurately calibrated moral compass i think in the play maybe with mm. the exception of Kant. Mm. um 
Yeah, the whole question of whether or not Goneril and Reagan are his illegitimate kids, I don't, it's not a theme that gets, that I recall, mm-hmm. elaborated on outside of this scene. Right. And I have read those lines as maybe more of a gesture about, not a gesture, um, a kind of teasing suggestion to Lear that because his daughters are acting without that sort of filial affection and loyalty, that maybe they were born in a break with nature. Maybe they're bastards. Yeah. But I, I didn't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it really matters either way. How no. what we do with the play. Yeah. I think you're right. Cause the, um, it's not a theme that comes back up. It's not a question that is raised really apart from, you know, a couple lines here and there from the fool. Yeah. But to, to David's point about this particular scene or, or to David's point about the, the, the character of the relationship between the fool and Lear, the fool says some things that are pretty, you know, pretty blunt. Um, Very. And, and, and here, and Lear doesn't seem like a guy who'd be okay with that. <laughs> not, right. Normally he's not a guy that's okay with that here. He doesn't even seem to notice earlier in that first, the first encounter with it. He, I don't think he, um, he doesn't even acknowledge the fool. He just returns. Well, it's one of his, his daughters of, or his questions of identity. He says, are you our daughter to Goneril at that point? Oh, wait, what? Say it again. Are you our daughter? The fool has just said, she's not your daughter. And not, not so directly. And then Lear says, are you our daughter? I didn't even make that connection when I read it the first time. Huh? huh. I didn't either. Sam, are you are you uh, at a playground? Yeah, I'm sorry. Our neighbors, I'm feeling a little self-conscious. Our neighbors are having a little party. And nice. I will try to be conscientious about muting my mic. It's all right. We got to wrap up here soon anyway. Um, last question then before we go. What about the fool's final line there? Because it seems apropos of nothing. She that's a maid now and laughs at my departure shall not be a maid long unless things be cut shorter. Now there's a, you know, he seems to be making a statement as the notes say in most volumes that i.e. the maid who laughed at my leaving would be a fool and would not remain a virgin unless men were castrated. But what does that have to do with anything? You get this like end cap, these end cap lines that, um, that Shakespeare puts in scenes like this, especially with fools that seem, again, apropos of nothing. Or am, am I... Nothing blind. that we know up to this point, probably. Right. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's about either. I really don't. I wrote. I wrote in my notes in the sideline. I wrote that he's being prescient here. Mm. So I see him being kind of prophetic, but I don't know. We'll have to keep reading to find out if I'm right or not. Well, there's certainly this context of like, um, it, both of both of the things he's equating there: people be, being maids and then not being maids, and then the similar sort of effects of being one thing and then not being that thing that, that castration involves, um, are, you know, those two things are being equated that, you know, the changing of, you know, how people change and, or are forced to change. I mean, I don't, mm. um, bad decisions, not being smart can cause extreme ramifications. I, I'm just speaking out yeah, loud yeah. right now without any thought at all. So it's probably about that time to go. <laughs> 
it's a really peculiar line. It's really peculiar. It's worth observing and then probably waiting. <laughs> uh, Matt, Tim, final thoughts. Matt, I'll go with you first. Yeah. Okay. One note. He says in line three oh five, the the Leerster. The Leerster. 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 Says to Goneril, thou shalt find, or when she shall hear this of thee, when Reagan shall hear this of thee about you, with her nails shall flay thy wolvish visage. Visage, thou shalt find that I'll resume the shape which thou dost think I have cast off forever. Hmm. I don't know what the shape is that he's going that he's threatening to resume. I wonder if he's referring to his youthful strength or his kingship, if he's going to take it all back or what. Hmm. But Goneril responds. Well, he leaves right when he says that. Then Goneril responds to Albany by saying, do you mark that? Did you hear what he just said? Did you catch that? He just threatened us kind of thing. Um, but then Albany's like, "I no, I can't see it the way you do kind of thing. So I don't know. I don't know if there's if there's a place where we see that, that threat be carried out or not, but it's interesting to me. I just want to watch for it. Hmm. Tim, final thoughts. We're about to, in Act 2, get to know uh, Edmund a little bit better. And (laughs) this is just me being a little bit obscure. Edmund is a very, I think he's a good character. I think he's one that we kind of hope is victorious in the end. Um, Wait, Edmund? Is it Edmund the Bastard? Edgar? No, I mean Edgar. Did I say Edmund? I mean Edgar. Yeah. I was like, you're like, Edmund's a good character. Wait, <laughs> you're like, what? what? Good, like, interesting? <laughs> you had Fun to watch? Like, a lot of time talking about Edmund, <laughs> Edmund last week. I just think it's worth thinking about what makes Edgar a good guy. Like, what are his redeeming qualities? I think that's a good question to be asked going into scene three, uh, act three. Hmm. Well, act two. Because did we kind of make it through act? Oh, no, we did not. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, so we will um, read. We will Next week, we will discuss act two. Um, and hopefully, we'll get through a big chunk of it. We're going to have to focus on some specific things. So if we don't cover something that you would like us to cover, then of course you can leave questions for us for the Q and a episode, which I'm sure will be like 17 hours long. We have to divide it up into four parts. Or something. <laughs> right. Also, I would like to make a request of the listeners, especially those who are on the, uh, the Facebook group. <laughs> if, if, if you are with me, that, that Lear is not the bad guy here. Can you guys help collect evidence in my favor? Because I feel like Tim's going to beat me up over this. Well, the rest of the play. I just yeah. want to point out that Penguin made a very interesting choice. That the one line from the play that they put in the back cover is the hedge sparrow fed the cuckoo so long that it had its head bit off by its young. So, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting to put that line of all of all the lines. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who's been listening. Um, don't forget to check out the Close to Reads flagship show where we are covering uh, Wallace Stegner's great novel, Crossing to Safety. I've been on going on there with Heidi White and Angelina Stanford, and that has been wonderful. So if you're listening to that, uh, thank you. If not, check it out. Um, we have, just so you know, we have a, 
a daily poem podcast coming soon. So be on the lookout for the ability to subscribe to that. The first episode for that is going to go up one week from today. And today we are recording on Monday, August 20th. So on Monday, August 27th, we are going to start uh, releasing uh, episodes of that each day, each of the five weekdays, barring holidays and things like that. Um, and of course, if you are up for leaving a comment or a review on the iTunes page for the the plays the thing feed, we would certainly appreciate that. Launching a new feed always takes a little bit of time to get some momentum. So anything you can do to help us build that momentum, we would be extremely grateful for. Tim might even write a one-act play about you if you do that. Can't I probably any, will. Can't make any promises, but you know, you never <laughs> know. Um, we should uh, we should like make that and like a something you can win that Tim and David will write a one-act play about you. <laughs> The that would be kind of fun. Just we got to find out like some specific detail, and we'll include it, and then yeah. we'll play about it. Um, yeah, and then we'll stage it <laughs> in the office. All right, Tim, Matt, thanks very much. You're thanks, welcome. you guys. That was great. For Tim, for Matt, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute. Thank you for listening. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.